categorically, there are two ways to improve as an endurance athlete. One is to reduce the level of effort you perceive at any given level of output. So like basically an eight minute mile feels easier and therefore you can run more eight minute miles. So everything is mediated through perception of effort and training does that. You know, if you start off just off the couch, an eight minute mile is going to feel really, really hard. So maybe you can only run one of them, but you train and what training does is it increases your body's physical capacity. So your brain doesn't have to work as hard to drive your body to run an eight minute mile. Eight minute miles start feeling easier. Yeah, on my hustle, keeping it going. This is what you need. Yes, indeed. This is coaching your coaching, hosted by Yash, the podcast, interviewing the elite high school, collegiate, and professional athletes, trainers, and doctors. Really, it's the dopest info that you need. This is coaching your coaching. Let's go. What's up, everyone? I appreciate you guys hopping on today. Really special guest. So, Matt, what's up, man? Tell me, who are you? What's going on? <laughs> My name is Matt Fitzgerald. I describe myself as an endurance coach, author, and nutritionist. I am based in Flagstaff, Arizona. Moved here actually recently to open up a new business called Dream Run Camp, which is kind of like the ultimate retreat for runners, but also other athletes. Awesome. Yeah, that was really good. So why don't you just tell me a little bit about how you got into fitness? Like, how did they kind of start? What was kind of the story getting into it? I grew up mostly in New Hampshire, so very far from here. And my dad was like very active when I was growing up. But before I was even born, he used to do these crazy solo long distance swims up on Lake Ontario and in the St. Lawrence River where he grew up. Then he joined the uh, Navy and became a Navy SEAL. And, you know, that's like very physical as well. Like my dad could hold his breath underwater longer than anyone I've ever known. But all that was before I was born. But while I was growing up, he started running marathons. And, you know, I looked up to my dad a lot. And when he did cool stuff like that, it made me want to do it as well. So, yeah, it's really been a lifelong thing for me, primarily through my father's influence. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I believe that. And we've definitely seen it. And, you know, even now, you've written so many books. I don't think I've ever met anybody who's written 30 books, like more than 30 books. That's crazy. So, what kind of kept you engaged in it all these years? Because I know you train actively. Yep. And, you know, that's really common in the fitness industry. We see people love what they do and they train continuously because they love it. They just love to fight. But I've never met anyone who's written that many books. What's kind of kept you like engaged in writing for that many years? I love writing. It's a little bit accidental that I ended up writing about sports and fitness. I was going to be a writer regardless. And I should say that that also came through my father's influence. My dad is a novelist. And so, you know, I grew up with his influence on that side as well. And, you know, just decided very early on that writing was probably the only thing I was really any good at and enjoyed it, partly for that reason. I mean, it's hard work, but it is enjoyable if you feel like you don't suck at it. And, <laughs> and also, I'm just I'm a very curious person. When I develop an interest in something, it becomes kind of a, a fascination bordering on obsession. So I'm about to turn 52. So I've been writing, you know, more than 40 years and, and the passion for writing never goes away, partly because unlike athletics, you can just keep getting better and better at, at something like writing your entire life. And so that definitely keeps me engaged. And then my curiosity hasn't faded as well. You know, I feel like I'm always learning. I always feel like I have something new to say that not only have I not said yet, but no one has said yet. So, you know, I could end up 
retiring and moving on to golf at some point, but it uh, hasn't happened yet. Definitely. And throughout your time riding, you've collaborated with such insane athletes, like some that come to mind right now, Meb Kaflesky and Dayton Risenheim, just insane athletes. What was it like collaborating with them? And what was it like riding and working with them? Yeah. Well, in addition to being an athlete, I'm also a sports fan. And growing up, I watched pretty much all sports, but because I was an endurance athlete myself, I had more of an interest in endurance sports than the average kid. You know, I would watch the Ironman on ABC's Wide World of Sports. Like we're going back to the mid 80s here, you know, the Boston Marathon. And I I was a fan of Greg LeMond when he was winning the Tour de France back in, in the 80s. And that continued as I moved into a career in endurance sports journalism. I had opportunities to actually get to know these folks and and write about them. And what I discovered is they are remarkable individuals. And when you look at elite athletes from a distance, there's this tendency to assume that they're kind of like comic book superheroes. They just, they're born with these amazing superpowers and that's the reason they're great. But when you get to know them as people, you realize that like, that's really only half the story. And the other half of what makes them great is what they've got going on between the ears. I mean, they all have their different personalities, but they tend to have certain things in common. And I find that extremely interesting. And so I really enjoy writing about, like trying to figure out what makes these athletes tick, studying them and getting to know them. Yeah, so it's just been cool to have these opportunities. It's nice when not only are you interested in them, but they're actually willing to give you the time of day (laughs) and open up so that you can figure out and share what you learn about what makes them tick. Definitely. Yeah. And speaking of having that comic book life admiration for some of these athletes, I've noticed that a lot too, something that I've been looking into and something I heard last night actually was David Goggins talk about if like he was in the hypothetical match with Roger Federer and if he's serving and he's just destroying me and you know, maybe he was saying it's like six, one and he got maybe like one point somehow. Right. By the time you get to that sixth point, he's like, they're not actually like a God anymore. They're just a yep. really, really good tennis player. Just uh-huh. like you're saying, they're great. I mean, you know, something between their yeah. ears is just on a different level. But as soon as you realize you're so close to them and they're not like a god, yeah. they're great, but not a god, it's too late because they've already taken the whole game away from you. And uh-huh. It's really interesting right. that way. And I really like that. And, and I'm curious, you've written about and you've talked to these athletes so much. What kind of goes on between the ears that you see somewhere that separates the greats from really good? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's more than one thing for sure. One of them is these athletes tend to have a strong internal locus of control is, is how psychologists would put it, which is to say, they trust their own decisions, and they, they trust their own process of arriving at, at decisions, which sounds kind of prosaic. It's like, ho-hum, why is that big a big deal? Well, if you look at the general athletic population, most athletes actually don't have that. Like, they're sort of lacking in confidence or they're insecure about how they're doing things. They're always like looking over their shoulder, oh, what's so-and-so doing over there? Or they're like, they're falling for bright, shiny object syndrome where something new that everyone's talking about comes along and they jump on it without even really thinking. And so elite athletes tend to be very autonomous. They feel like, I can figure this out for myself. It's not like they don't need help, but they're very selective in where they seek help. And then once they get on track with a formula that works for them, they stick with it because they're very secure in their capacity to self-regulate. So that's one thing. Another thing that you see in, in all these athletes, which is 
probably kind of obvious, but very real and shouldn't be overlooked is they hate to lose. Losing is like death <laughs> to seriously, to the real legends of sport, like winning feels great, but you know, they fear losing more than they love winning. And so they're just willing to sacrifice and suffer and endure more than anyone else. To a certain extent, every sport is like a game of chicken and talent certainly matters. Practice certainly matters. But in the heat of battle, it's often the last person to blink <laughs> is the one who wins. And in the great athletes, you see that they're just, they're just not going to blink. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so crazy. I mean, a lot of the grades talk about it. When you're in that mindset of you're always afraid of losing, you're always fighting. It's so crazy. And it's like, it's unbelievable. I guess when you see athletes compete for that one hour, sometimes they compete for that hour and they're kind of done after that hour. They kind of go on and do other things. But when you're afraid of losing, that thing goes on in your head all the time. That's, yeah. that's just unbelievable to me. It's so cool how they do it. And one of your books, How Bad Do You Want It? You went into like the psychology behind it. You know, you went into the psychology behind performance, mental toughness. Could you share a little bit about that? How mental toughness allows people to overcome those obstacles during a competition? Sure. Yeah, that book is based on what at the time was a newer theory of endurance performance that was developed by an Italian exercise physiologist named Samuela Marcora. And the name of his theory is the psychobiological model of endurance performance. Mm -hmm. And exercise science goes back to the early 20th century, like as a, a formal discipline, kind of 1920s-ish. And for the longest time, decades, exercise physiologists tended to ignore the brain <laughs> when they were trying to explain the limits of endurance performance. So they had the various theories of, of why we can't go farther, why we can't go faster. They were based on the idea that some sort of physical breakdown occurred, like almost like our bodies are machines. And when we hit a limit, it was because our muscles ran out of glycogen or because there was too much lactic acid built up in our muscle tissues or, or whatever. What became apparent through research is that none of these theories held up. At the point of failure in any type of endurance test, our bodies are actually fine. <laughs> like there's, there's actually nothing broken. There's no physical explanation for why we quit when we do. And yet we all quit at some point. And what Marcoro proposed was that what actually limits us in endurance performance is that we encounter a perceptual limit before we hit any kind of hard physical limit. So as anyone who's exercised before knows, the more intensely you exercise or the more you push through fatigue while exercising, the more you suffer. It doesn't, it's not just that your body's working hard and your brain's on autopilot, you feel it. And just as people have limits of pain tolerance, I mean, there are ways of actually experimentally inducing pain that cause no physical damage. And yet everyone taps out, you know, in these studies, like everyone taps out at some point, like we have a purely non-physical, intangible psychological limit to our pain tolerance. Everyone, no exceptions, unless you have one of those rare genetic disorders where you don't <laughs> feel pain. And it's the same thing in the endurance context. It's called perception of effort, which is, it kind of feels like pain, but it's actually, it's a distinct perception. And so when you're, say, running a marathon and the first mile's easy, the second mile's still pretty easy, you get 10 miles in, it's getting harder. The deeper you go, the more you're trying to push through fatigue, the more your perception of effort increases. And ultimately, 
you will reach your maximum tolerable perception of effort before you before you break down physically. And so that's what you're trying to manage in the endurance context. And so that book is sort of based on that theory. And then it explores all the practical implications of that. Okay, like given the fact that that is the nature of our limit as endurance athletes, how do we game the system in order to squeeze more performance out of ourselves? Hmm. Definitely, yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What are some of those tactics to like get that extra part, suffer through that pain, keep going? And then, yep. yeah, go ahead. Tell me a little bit about that, please. Sure. Categorically, there are two ways to improve as an endurance athlete. One is to reduce the level of effort you perceive at any given level of output. So like basically an eight minute mile feels easier and therefore you can run more eight minute miles. So everything is mediated through perception of effort and training does that. You know, if you start off just off the couch, an eight minute mile is going to feel really, really hard. So maybe you can only run one of them, but you train and what training does is it increases your body's physical capacity. So your brain doesn't have to work as hard to drive your body to run an eight minute mile, eight minute miles start feeling easier. And that's why you can run more of them. There are lots of other mechanisms that work in the same way. Caffeine is one of them, completely different mechanism, but it works in the same way. Why does caffeine enhance endurance performance? Because it makes it feel easier. <laughs> it actually doesn't really do anything relevant to your physiology below the neck that allows you to do more. It simply makes the same effort feel easier. And because that's the true limiter, it increases performance. The other category of mechanisms that you can use to become a better endurance athlete is to increase your perceived effort tolerance. So basically you push up the limit because although perceptual limits are real, they are different in nature than physical limits, right? Like you can't just take off and fly by flapping your arms, but you can actually increase your tolerance for perceived effort. And it's a natural process. Like I remember the first time I ran like a one mile race, I thought I was going to die. You know, it's just like, oh my God. <laughs> but then you don't die. And so the next time you run a mile race, you actually can run faster, even if you haven't trained and gotten any fitter because you've sort of calibrated your perception of effort and you're actually just able to push a little bit deeper into the pain cave. And similar to reducing perceived effort at any given level of output, there are a variety of different ways you can increase your perceived effort tolerance. One of them is to heighten your motivation level. The more motivated you are, the more you're willing to suffer in pursuit of a goal. And for me, I was sort of a head case when I was a high school runner and I was just, I didn't perform as well as I should have because I just wasn't able to tap into the sort of motivation that some of my rivals who would rather die than lose were able to do. And so I worked on that very consciously. One thing that increased my motivation level was I didn't like seeing myself as mentally weak. It was very personal. It wasn't just that it limited my performance. It sort of soured the way I viewed myself as a man. And so that was very meaningful to me. So racing for me was a way of closing the gap between who I was and who I wanted to be. And that for me, you know, it's different for every person. Motivation is very individual. But for me, that was a very powerful motivator that allowed me to become much more mentally tough over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I love that. And it's wild to me. I've never heard of those things. Those sound really interesting. And that makes so much sense. But I'm surprised that at that time, you writing the book, that it wasn't that popular. One that I found really interesting was the comeback potion and that book. You talked about how athletes could bounce back from setbacks, injuries, you know, and stuff like that. And 
we see it all the time. I mean, athletes kind of get injured, they fall off the wagon, and they're not able to get back to that place mentally. I noticed, like, I watch a lot of basketball. I just saw um, Zion Williams, if you know Zion. Yeah. He got hurt, and he just said it recently, and the media kind of bashed him for it. But he was saying, I'm physically ready. I'm ready to be on the court. He even was throwing down dunks. But in his head, he was like, I don't feel like Zion anymore. And we see that kind of with a lot of different athletes. We see that where they just have a hard time getting over that hump, getting back into it. And you wrote pretty extensively about that. Can you talk a little bit about how athletes could kind of get into that and apply some of those insights? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I'm not a sports psychologist, but I have an abiding interest in sports psychology. And though I lack the knowledge of someone who has a PhD in sports psychology, I think it's somewhat of an advantage to me that I don't have that education because I have my own kind of perspective on things. I agree. Um, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's easier for me to think a little bit outside the box. And, and one of my frustrations, I mean, there are a lot of really good sports psychologists out there and I pay attention to the research, but one of my frustrations with it is like, in sort of scientific sports psychology research, when they try to explain what enables certain athletes to be more resilient or bounce back from a setback more quickly than others, they tend to look at traits. You know, it's just like, well, resilience is one of them. There's all kinds of talk about resilience. And the problem with that is if you attribute what the great athletes do to something in their makeup, there's not a heck of a lot you can do with that. It's sort of like, you know, getting back to basketball, if, you know, if you do a study of success in basketball and they conclude that it helps to be tall, yeah. you know, <laughs> you, you as an aspiring basketball player, there's nothing practical you can do with that. You know, it's just yeah. like, you can hope you grow, but like, you can't make it happen. And so with the comeback quotient, what I wanted to do was study not the makeup of athletes who pull off these amazing comebacks when they're just seemingly down for the count and then they they return to glory. But like, how do they actually do it? What is the process? And comebacks come in all shapes and sizes. Like injury is a very common one. Illness can be another. It could be like a tragedy in your personal life. Yeah. Or I mean, there's like all different kinds of ways. So on the surface, comebacks look very different. But in the research I did for this book, I found that actually underneath those superficial differences, all of these athletes are really going through the same process. And I don't think this is like what anyone would expect, but the process is facing reality. That's why I, I, I call these people like in the book, I give lots of examples of truly great athletes who execute amazing comebacks of different sorts. And my label for the athletes who are capable of these amazing comebacks is ultra realists. Because that's what they're actually doing. It's, it's, a, it's kind of, there are three steps to it. Step one is the oh shit moment when actually the setback occurs. And again, I, I give the example of Elliot Kipchoge, the greatest marathoner of all time. His shoe came off in the middle of, of a marathon that he was winning. That's an oh shit moment right there. And often like you know, most everyday athletes are thrown by the setback and they, they tend to focus on the problem. But the, the people who actually make the best of these situations they do three things. Step one is that they accept the reality. Instead of saying, oh, woe is me. Why does this always happen to me? They're like, my shoe came off. I didn't want my shoe to come off, but it's a fact. That is the crucial first step. You have to accept the reality in front of you. It's like you can't solve a problem that you refuse to acknowledge even exists. Mm -hmm. Step two is embracing the reality. And that sounds like you try to convince yourself that you're happy your shoe came off or that you got injured, but that's not it. 
embracing the reality of a bad situation simply means that you commit to making the best of it, even if the best you can make of it isn't what you hoped for. So sometimes a setback occurs and your original goal is out the window. It's just not possible. But the great athletes, they sort of embrace that. They're like, you know what? This isn't my day. Luck wasn't on my side today, but I'm still going to embrace the challenge of doing the best I can, all things considered. So that's a crucial first step. And then the final step in that process is addressing reality. And that means simply, I use that common expression, you know, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Cause like yeah. that really is this process of accepting, embracing and addressing reality. The last step in that process is making the lemonade, <laughs> yeah. right? Like it's one thing to say, I'm going to make the best of it, but then you actually have to go out and do it. And two things are required for that. One is effort. A lot of athletes in a bad situation, they just aren't willing to make an absolute effort because it, it can be demoralizing when things happen to go in your way. And the other piece besides effort is judgment. And that one is overlooked. Everyone understands the importance of effort and trying hard, but judgment is every bit as crucial, like keeping a level head and making good decisions because there are a lot of decisions to be made as an athlete. Yeah, definitely. And I resonate with that a lot. That makes a lot of sense because for me, I tore my ACL like a while back and I noticed similar stages from getting back to competition. And one of the biggest ones for me, and I know a lot of people who I've talked to who have had injuries and in getting back to sport, which is accepting you're a different person after the injury is kind of huge. It's like yep. a no brainer almost, but it's not something that people usually do, right? Just because yep. when it happens, you're almost trying to say, okay, it happened. How do I get back to the sport? And you're trying to get back immediately. You haven't really accepted that it's not going right. to be exactly the same. You're not going to be the pre-ACL athlete anymore. You're going to be an athlete with the ACL and accepting that. That's huge. I think that's going to be super interesting as we see it like play out even more. And I think right now we're still in that stage where people haven't really adopted that yet. I'm curious, you wrote another book, Iron War. Tell me a little bit about that incredible battle between the two. What did you kind of learn from the rivalry? And tell me a little about that. Yeah. Yeah, I mentioned uh, earlier in the interview, when I was a kid, I would watch ABC's Wide World of Sports on, I think it was like Saturday afternoons. And every year they would do a special on the Ironman World Championship. And the two top male triathletes back in those days in the 80s were Dave Scott and Mark Allen. And, you know, I just thought the Ironman was incredibly cool and that these athletes were amazing. And fast forward a dozen years or so, and I'm, I'm an editor with Triathlete Magazine, and I'm actually getting to know these people. They were close to retirement and then post-retirement by that time, but they were still involved in the sport. And the more I got to learn about, so these guys had, they, they had a classic one-on-one -on -one sports rivalry. You know, the, they were like, you know, Chris Everett Lloyd and Martina Navratilova, just like head and shoulders better than everyone else at their sport but like very, very equally matched with one another. And it was just a saga that just absolutely captivating to watch these two go head to head year after year at Ironman. But Dave always won. That's the thing. Like Dave, his nickname was the man. And Mark was unbeatable everywhere else. He would win every other races, but for some reason he could not figure out. And the Ironman World Championship is really the Super Bowl. So Dave had Mark's number at, at the Ironman. So it just created a, like a really compelling narrative and then part of also what made it compelling was just how different these two guys were. Mark Allen was like, like a, this, well, his nickname was the Zen master. So he was very into like new age spirituality. And then he got into shamanism. He was like a, like a big surfer, 
And so like at the end of every, after Ironman every year, he would just take six weeks off and surf in, in San Diego. And Dave was much more old school. He was like a true, and th these are his words, like true, like endorphin junkie exercise addict. He didn't care about bike technology or getting massages or, or any of like the ancillary stuff yeah. that a lot of pro athletes get into. For him, it was just like, I'm going to outwork and outsuffer everyone else. I'm going to put all my eggs in that one basket. They're like, I am the last man standing always. So just the fact that these two guys were polar opposites of each other in personality and yet exact equals on the race course yeah. made it a cool rivalry. So at some point, I just decided that I wanted to tell the story of it. And it all culminated in their final showdown at the 1989 Ironman World Championship. And for people who don't know the sport, it's an eight-hour-plus race. <laughs> and those two athletes in their final showdown were neck and neck for the entire eight plus hours, all the way through, all the way through the 2.4 mile swim, all the way through the 112 mile bike ride, side by side, and then all the way until the very end of the marathon, when one of them, I won't spoil it, made the decisive move and broke the race open. So it was just, it was absolutely, on one level, you would think, well, nothing's happening. They're just tied, <laughs> but it was just, it was absolutely gripping for anyone who experienced it. So Ironmore, AI yeah, just it, it goes through all the layers of that story and then also explores kind of the why, you know, what was it that made these two able to do things that at the time were considered impossible. So yeah, fun book to write. Yeah, I believe it definitely. And I'm curious, I think we should go into a little bit of what you're doing right now with the Dream Run Camp. I haven't seen anything like that before. I think it's really interesting just to talk about what it is and why you went that route with your new journey. Why'd you kind of go that direction with it? And what do you think is going to kind of come out of it? Yeah. So one of the cool things about being a writer is that you can imagine experiences that you want to have, and then you can have those experiences because writing about them gives you an excuse to do them. And so 2017, so about six years ago, I was 46 years old. So at that point, you know, I was like, I'd been running for a long time and I was no longer improving but I still had the hunger and the passion. And like every other athlete who's passionate about sport, I used to have a fantasize about what would it be like to be a pro or like, or at least to be able to live like a pro to like, to go like, how good could I be if I was able to just tune out all the distractions and go all in on running. And so uh, in 2017, I convinced the head coach of a professional running team, the Hoka Northern Arizona elite team based here in Flagstaff to let me join the team for one summer and just be sort of an honorary, well, I, I call it like a fake professional runner, like an honorary pro. So to be clear, I was literally twice the age of the real pros on the team, oh. old enough to be the father of some of them, or at least to have <laughs> babysat the older members of the team when they were kids. And even when I was 25, 30, I wasn't an elite runner. Like I was a good runner, but I, I even when I was younger, I wasn't at their level. So it wasn't like I couldn't keep up with them. I wasn't the same as them. And yet I was doing everything they did. The complete lifestyle from the training to the massage, to the nutrition, to the sports psychology, to the physiotherapy, to the afternoon naps, the whole deal. And it was just, not only did it transform me as a runner, I ended up running the Chicago Marathon at the end of that. And I was, I was actually, some rules were bent and I was able to run as a pro which was just like an incredible experience. And I, I ran my fastest marathon ever. It was like my 41st marathon and I hadn't touched my best time in nine years. And I beat it at age 46, which was pretty incredible. <laughs> but more than that, 
the whole experience was just a pinch me moment. Like I would wake up in the morning, eat breakfast, go meet up with the team. And in some, you know, Flagstaff is just a runner's paradise. Just we were always out on these beautiful trails. I'm looking around at these incredible athletes who were now my teammates and thinking, this isn't real, (laughs) but but it was. And so I came away from that experience. I wrote a book about it called, yes, of course I wrote a book about it, right? (laughs) <laughs> called Running the Dream. And it was cool because, you know, it allowed runners who read that book are able to sort of live the, the experience vicariously through me. But a lot of the feedback I got from people who read the book was like, yeah, that's great, but I want to do that. Like, I, 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 I want to actually forget vicariously. Like, I want to do what you did. So Dream Run Camp was really born out of that. So the idea is to create the closest possible facsimile to the experience I had and make it available to any runner. So what I did was my wife and I sold our house in California, moved here to Flagstaff. We bought it like a nice, big, spacious house. And then we're in the process of completely pimping it out to make it the ultimate runner's retreat. So it's got like a commercial quality gym in the garage. It's got a mind body recovery lounge. It's going to have a spa pool, a sauna, all kinds of like running themed art on the walls and stuff. And so from the early spring to the late fall, any runner is welcome to come out here and stay for up to 12 weeks. And the Dream Run Camp operates in affiliation with Northern Arizona Elite, the same pro team that I was embedded with in 2017. So just like me, the runners who come here will have opportunities to run with the pros, to work with their staff. Yeah. And so the idea is that it will just be a transformative experience for runners, both on an athletic level, you know, they'll actually get better, but also they'll just get to experience the intensity, like the aliveness, you know, just like you just feel so alive when you're able to go all in on a a passion. So yeah, it actually hasn't started yet. As we speak, doors open May 1st. So this will be our first season. And we're, yeah, we're just getting ready to open it up. That's gonna be exciting. And I really love how you went this route because that's something even for me, dreaming about going out and being a professional for a day and having all facilities. I had those too. I know so many people who did. I mean, that's always like a dream to be able to have all those facilities and just have that time where you're like, I wonder if I picked this sport and I didn't have anything else to do, but just do the sport and just live like that. And I think it's going to be great for people who always wanted to do that, just like yourself and myself, but also people who say that they think they could be at that level if they had that training. Right. Because if they come to your camp and they perform like that person, then they were right in their mind. There's no regret anymore. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt. Right. So yeah. I think that's going to be interesting because that's one of the craziest things that I hear all the time, which is people who passed that age and were like, I wish I gave this a shot and I kind of got yep. to that level. So I think that's going to be interesting. You're going to have people from all different kinds of disciplines kind of showing up coming for like a yep. different thing. And tell me a little bit about the community of like people there. Community for yourself has been huge. You ran with a bunch of professionals. You communicate with some of the greatest athletes. How are you going to create that community there so that any runner could kind of feel engrossed with everybody else and kind of vibe with everybody? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I love that question. And that was a huge component of the, of the experience that I had in California, which was home for my wife and myself at the time. We felt kind of isolated. We lived out in the Central Valley, not too close to any family or close friends. There weren't a lot of athletes really in the area. So I didn't have folks to train with. And then we come to Flagstaff for the summer. And I felt like I'd been there for 20 years after 20 hours. I mean, I actually lived, my wife and I stayed with one of the professional runners on the team. So that helped, you know, like we were literally under the same roof with one of the team members. 
but just like Flagstaff has, you know, it's not a big city. It's just, it's less than 80,000 people. And it's just filled with runners, a lot of pros, but just a lot of everyday runners too. And also, you know, climbers and other outdoorsy people. And it's a very tight knit community. So if you show up and you're not a jerk, you're going to make friends very quickly. <laughs> and, and that's what happened with me. I made lifelong friends. Yeah. No time. And Flagstaff is very special in that way. But, you know, people who move here from Florida or you know, New Hampshire or whatever, they all tell a similar story. It's like, oh, I was considering Bend, Oregon and Boulder and Flagstaff. And, and when I came to Flagstaff, people actually made me feel like they wanted me to be here. So community is a, a big part of what makes Flagstaff special. And it's a big part of what I want dream runners to experience when they come to dream run camp. And so I'm totally dialed in and networked here. And so when people arrive here, they'll just get fast-tracked into making connections. And, you know, it's up to each individual to make friends. Like, you never know who a, a given person's going to buy opportunities. And just a, a, as one example, like, there's the big running club here in Flagstaff. is called Team Run Flagstaff. It's like, it's kind of the old, only show in town. It has more than 300 members. Cool. And so the camp is partnering with them to create opportunities for the runners who come here, you know, just temporarily to get to meet and interact with the full-time members of that team. So like lots of little things like that, I think will create a very genuine sense of community. Yeah, I forgot the author's name, but the book Atomic Habits, he talks about when you join a community of people who the buy-in or almost what they do every day is just normal, is what you want. All of a sudden, you've been on a fast track to where you want to be. Yeah. So if someone really wants to run once a week, well, if they come to Dream Run Camp and they run every day with a bunch of people who run multiple times a day, all yeah. of a sudden, they don't even have to think about it. They're already on their way. I'm curious. You've coached for such a long time. You've had like all these experiences. Is there anything from your writing career, your coaching career, your training career that has just been an experience that was so memorable that you just tell people about all the time? Something that kind of gets you going? Yeah. I mean, there's so many. I mean, honestly, circling back to where we started with my dad and also my mother, like they raised me to think of life as just possibilities. and. It's like a canvas that you can dress up any way you like. There's no path that you have to follow just because others have done it before you. And I took that to heart. And so that's the way I've lived my life and I've approached my career. I mean, the, the, that crazy experiment I told you about, like becoming a fake professional runner at 46, people don't do that. But I did because it was just ingrained. It's like, why not? You know, it'll be great. It's risky. And sometimes you fall on your face. So. And believe me, I have fallen on my face <laughs> a few times. But when you're cool with that and you just go ahead and live your life that way, you get to have a ton of amazing experiences. So it makes a question like that very difficult to answer. But the one that always bubbles to the surface when I'm asked a question like that is I took a trip to Kenya in 2015 and I was researching a book because like, again, I said, I use writing as an excuse to have experiences that I just want to have as a human being. And so I spent two weeks in Kenya and it was like a totally running themed trip. And so I was, I was meeting with some of the, the top Kenyan runners and some of the, the scientists in Kenya and doing a lot of running. And at one point in the middle of the trip, I actually ran a marathon and it was on this isolated wilderness reserve in a place called Lewa. So if you've ever like gone on safari in Africa or you're aware of like what that is, like you get in a Jeep and you go around and you see tigers. Well, this was like a safari with no Jeep. <laughs> yeah. 
And in this wilderness preserve, like humans are not allowed on this land except for one time a year. And that's for the marathon. The marathon's a fundraiser in order to preserve the animals. So yeah. they're like, there's, there's no hotels, there's nothing. It's just yeah. in the middle of nowhere. So everyone who runs this marathon, and there's also a half marathon, they actually camp out the night before. Yeah. And it's almost all Kenyans. You know, I've run a bunch of marathons where there are like 10 Kenyans yeah. and they finish first, second, third, fourth, fifth, you know, yeah. they're like, you know, they're way up front. But this one, like I was actually in the minority, like, you know, there's a fair, fair number of like, Europeans and Americans, like tourists running there, but it, it was yeah. mostly Kenyans. And so that was super cool. And then running the race, you're just out in the middle of nowhere, like this classic African savanna. And there's wildlife everywhere. So like you, did, you didn't see any predators because I guess the rangers sort of pushed them toward one end <laughs> of, of the territory so they wouldn't eat any of the runners. But like there's zebra <laughs> out there and rhinoceri and giraffes and wild African dogs. And it was just an incredible experience. It just like, yeah, another one of those pinch me moments. Like how did life bring me to this situation? But yeah, unforgettable. Something I'm so glad I did. I believe it. That sounds straight out of a movie. That is <laughs> that is amazing. And I mean, if they let one of those predators, that'd be very scary for me. I mean, I would not be running by myself. I would be like yeah. very shielded in one of the sides. Yeah. But, um... Well, well, check this out. So after the race, I finished the marathon. And by the way, so the, there's a, the Swahili word for, it's like white person slash foreigner is Muzungu. And, you know, they don't have like the whole political correctness thing. Uh -huh. So like, like I would be running along and I would pass like a, a group of Kenyan spectators and they would all shout, Mzungu, Mzungu. <laughs> and, and so I ended up figuring out at the end of the race that I was first Mzungu. There was no category, but like I was, I beat all the other white people <laughs> in the race. So I was feeling pretty good about that. And I was going to like, they had like an outdoor showers set up where you, cause nothing around there. So the only way to clean up was in one of these outdoor showers. So I'm walking from my tent to the shower and I passed by a fresh antelope carcass. And so clearly that antelope had been killed and half eaten by a lion while we were sleeping the night before. So yeah, it was, it was a little bit sketchier than, than we even knew. <laughs> that is really funny. <laughs> so before we get out of here, man, I'm really curious. Can you just tell us about how many marathons you did? Also, what's your advice to keep people training just all their life? Just keeping that passion going, always training. Yeah, I've, I've run more than 50 marathons and I've done like a lot of triathlons too, races of other distances, started to get into ultra marathons. I've been a little bit surprised. Like when I was much younger, I used to look ahead to like age 38 as like, I've got to get everything done by the time I'm 38. Cause like by then I'll be too old and I'll be slowing down and it won't be fun anymore and I'll move on. And that just didn't happen. I, I blew right past 38. And part of what kept the passion alive for me is yes, like you can't get physically stronger for your entire life. Aging is, is a reality that catches up with all of us, but you actually can continue to master your sport yeah. at a higher and higher level as long as you keep doing it. And so there's kind of an intellectual challenge there to the sport that I didn't anticipate that became sort of my main focus. So once I got to the point where in fact, I wasn't running faster than ever before, I started trying to become faster relative to my age. You know, so when I was 30 years old, there were a lot of 30 year olds who were better than me. But by the time I was in my late forties, there were not many people my age who I couldn't beat. You know, because like they were fading and I wasn't fading as much. And it was because I was still actively trying to 
master the sport, like, you know, just fine tune my personal formula, find better ways to do things like experiment and learn. And that can keep you going as long as you like. And not everyone, some people just say, ah, I can't get faster anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to golf. But uh, for me, that, that really hasn't been the case. Definitely. I love that. And what's the go-to pair of shoes? What's uh, So the shoe sponsor, the footwear sponsor for NAZ Elite, the team I was with is Hoka. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kind of became a Hoka guy when I was with the team. I didn't want to be the jerk showing up at practice in Nikes when everyone else is in Hoka. So initially I was just going along to get along, but I ended up really liking the shoes and have been, you know, I mix it up, but I'm basically a Hoka guy. Nice. That's cool. Yeah. That's awesome. And before we get out of here, man, can you talk a little bit about where can people find the dream camp to sign up for that stuff like that yeah. about any of the books you got going on, one of the highlight in the past or any projects, just anything like that. Sure. So Dream Run Camp is easy. It's just dreamruncamp.com. I do have another business. The, sh- the shirt I'm wearing here for 8020 Endurance is another company I started that has all kinds of different training and coaching resources for endurance athletes. And so that's just 8020endurance.com. And then my personal website is mattfitzgerald.org. And if you hit the books tab, it has you know, a picture of the cover and a little thumbnail description of all of my 30 plus books. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you hopping on, man. Best of luck with the Dream Camp. I'm excited to see how it pans out. I really appreciate you hopping on today, man. I know everyone's getting a lot of value out of this. We touched a lot of very generic things, talked a lot about your books. It's going to be really exciting to see how it comes out. Right on. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Of course. Thanks, guys, for listening. Bye-bye.